Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Vice President of Performance at the UFC Performance Institute, Duncan French. Thanks for tuning in to episode 162 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So absolutely delighted to get on Duncan French, who, as it turns out, uh, grew up about 20 miles from me uh, and used to play for the um, the same junior team, obviously a couple of years older, but for the same junior team growing up. So uh, small world in, uh, in the world of sports science and strength and conditioning. So great to get Duncan on. Uh, it's been He's been someone I've been trying to get on for a while, but obviously the change in job um, to the UFC kind of... Um, put a little delay on it but I was glad we were able to wait uh, and line this up and uh, and make it happen. So in this episode with Duncan uh, we discuss building a high performance uh, structure and philosophy which he's obviously going through at the minute uh, at the UFC Performance Institute. Uh, we obviously look at the, uh, the state of UFC at the minute and where Duncan sees it going in the future, and also looking at some of the the work that he's done uh, so far whilst he's been at the UFC, Um, looking at um, physical assessments, looking at uh, building a uh, reports for potential common injuries, um, also looking in line with common practice with the UFC um, that are pot- and, and potential rules and uh, regulations that are going to come in um, UFC wide. So if you are interested in anything to do with fighting sports, um, anything to do with grappling sports, you will absolutely love this. People ask me about high performance structures. Well, a high performance structure to me is not necessarily an org chart, it's a philosophy. I say that flippantly because obviously there's a hierarchy and there's there's different roles and responsibilities, but high performance services and high performance structures are, are a mentality and a, and a way we go about our work on a day-to-day basis. So I'm really looking forward to bringing you this podcast with, uh, with Duncan French. But just before we do, just want to say a massive thanks to Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard, Groin Bar and Human Track for sponsoring this episode today. So if you are interested in either of the three products that Val Performance uh, carry, make sure you check them out on Twitter, at Val Performance, or visit them online at valdeperformance.com. So also massive thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So really pleased to keep uh, to keep Fatigue Science on board. So they were they were put in touch with me via the guys at the Seattle Seahawks, who I know use their product and speak very highly of it. So if you are interested in a team-based solution for sleep tracking, please visit them online at fatiguescience.com. And they're also on Twitter as well, so if you want to check them out on there, they are there. So over to the podcast with Duncan. I know you'll enjoy it and would love your feedback, and I'll chat to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So much anticipated episode with the Vice President of Performance at the UFC Performance Institute in Duncan French. So welcome to the podcast, Duncan. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate your time. Nice to uh, nice to talk to you. I'm privileged to be on the, the podcast. There's been some great names, so uh, I, uh, I appreciate the invite. No, it's good to have you, mate. Um, I'll slip you that fiver. 
yeah. later on. Thanks for that. Um, so anyone that doesn't know who you are, I just want to give us a little bit of background on you, what you've been, what you're doing now, what you've previously done, education. Take us on a little journey. A little journey. Wow, well, this is um, this is always the embarrassing part, right? Because um, you know, I've, I've I've been very privileged. I've had a, a a good career to date, and you know, keep striving to do more. But um, yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, I've been involved in elite, you know, professional Olympic sports for over twenty years now. Um, primarily as a strength and conditioning coach, um, and that's kind of what people have, have have heard me speaking at different conventions and things around the world. Primarily, but um, yeah, I mean. Got my PhD in exercise physiology back in 2004 at the University of Connecticut over here in the United States um, with Bill Kramer, who's one of the, the forefathers of, of research in resistance training, and that kind of really started my interest in the in the, in the field. Um, you know, I, I graduated in 2004 and returned back to the UK, um, and was lucky enough to drop into the English Institute of Sport as a as a multi sport strength and conditioning coach at that time back in 2005 2006. So the, the EIS had not been around too long, um, so I was one of the kind of first original strength coaches, which was really exciting at that time. Um, got to work with, you know, a multitude of different athletes as we all do in this in this field. You know, you, you blood yourself and, and and get experience with with you know Paralympic athletes, single you know individual sports, you know team sports. I worked a lot with the GB boxers up in the northeast of England. Tony Jeffries, who won a bronze medal at the the Beijing Olympics. Bradley Saunders and. Dave Dolan, who was a gold medal medalist at the at the Commonwealth Games, and then other you know horizontal jumps, track and field, and um, things like that. I um, worked a lot with England basketball, um, based on my experience that I had in, in my PhD. When I was at Connecticut, the, the women were three-time national champions, and men uh, were, were 2004 national champions. I had the opportunity to work with some of those teams out in, in Connecticut. So when I returned to the UK, I, I Became the head strength and conditioning coach for England basketball at the 2006 Commonwealth Games, um, where we won bronze medals for both the men and women, which was was an awesome experience. And then following the announcement of, of 2012 uh, that was going to be in London, um, I became the inaugural head SNC coach to the, to the GB basketball team, which was just um, formulated for the games. So for six years, I was heading up the the strength and conditioning for the, for those programs, which was awesome. Um, you know, I had three years as as the head of strength and conditioning in the, the Premier League with Newcastle United. Um, I worked at Northumbria University as a professor for a couple of years. You know, I was uh, the chairman of the UKCA. I was on the board of the UKCA for um, eight years. Um, more recently, 2012 to 2016, was the, the head S&C for GB Taekwondo, um, which is a hugely successful program and really kind of getting really experience with combat sports, that and the boxing, I guess. Um, and then in 2016, I had the opportunity to move out to the USA. So in January 2016, I became the Director of Performance Sciences at University of Notre Dame, um, which again, big NCAA school, 27 different sports, 760 student athletes, you know, lots of moving parts, um, which was exciting. And then uh, I was approached to... to for this new position, which I'm now in as a, as a VP of performance, heading up the uh, the performance initiatives for the new UFC Performance Institute here in, in Las Vegas. So, uh, yeah, really exciting career. I've been blessed, and now I have to look back and reflect, and uh, I've been very lucky. I've worked with some amazing people, and um, hopefully long may it continue. Superb. Were you with uh, Chris Barnes at GB Basketball? Did he come after or before you? So Barnes, he was after me. Um, okay. You know, uh, 
Nick Grantham was after me, Calvin yeah. Morris was after me. So again, I'd, I'd moved on at that point. Initially with basketball, um, I, I worked with both the men's and women's team. Um, it became too big. The, you know, they were going in different directions around Europe, so I couldn't do uh, do both. So um, I kind of took on the men primarily, and Nick worked with the with the women's team, and then I moved into uh, into a different role. So um, yeah, that's when Barnsley and the other guys took on on that different position there. So what's your day to day at the uh, Performance Institute? Yeah, so as, as here, you know, obviously out in the desert in Las Vegas, we, you know, as the VP of performance, um, my job is essentially to to drive all the strategy and vision for how we're going to interact with athletes. Um, you know, I essentially manage our performance services, of which we have, you know, directors of strength and conditioning, nutrition, physical therapy, um, and a number of other staff. So, um, you know, I coordinate the performance services. Um, sometimes I'm at the coalface getting my, my hands dirty and and doing, you know, training, assessments, you know, and, and, and different sports science initiatives. Other times I'm I'm sitting and, and trying to uh, understand how we're going to operate better as a team and obviously driving our, our ambitions and our strategies and the vision for, for what the PI is. So what is the, what is the vision? I suppose short-term and, and long-term? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so, so listen, you know, we've the, the Performance Institute opened in in May of this year, 2017. It's a it's a purpose built, high performance training facility, uh, and the vision is to accelerate the evolution of MMA. I mean, that's that's ultimately our mantra. That's what we want to do. Um, the sport of MMA is 24 years old, kind of officially, um, you know, from the UFC um, when it first started. So, as a professional sport, still very young when you compare it to. Other sports like baseball, which started in the 1890s, American football in the you know 1920s, soccer back in the 1800s. So you know it's it's still still young. So the whole point of the Performance Institute is to really take uh, you know the world's fastest growing sport, um, which is a true global sport, um, and and accelerate you know the evolution of, of the professionalism, um, how we're looking after the athletes from a health and, and well-being perspective, but also trying to elevate performance standards uh, and direct and, and influence best practice globally in, in, in the sport of MMA. So were you were you surprised at anything when you came in? Were you pleasantly surprised? What where's MMA at in terms of in terms of performance? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really tricky question. Um, it, I'm a surprise, no, because these are professional athletes and, um, you know, they, they train as such and um, they're combat athletes and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to elevate their performance standards and, and they're very creative in the gyms around the world. So, you know, I've been around combat athletes, primarily striking sports like taekwondo and boxing, um, you know, the, there's a culture um, that goes with with combat athletes and combat sports in general, um, which I really resonate towards. You know, I, I love working with those blue chip, blue collar athletes that that really want to get after it and um, and work hard. Um, but I guess, like I say, it's it's also a very young sport. Um, so it's about trying to understand how collectively, as as a global population and as as a community, we can all work together um, to elevate what MMA is. So, um, you know, the MMA has has got some hugely knowledgeable technical coaches, um, and, and and from from all the different you know fighting disciplines, 
Um, and at the other side of the spectrum is some really knowledgeable performance specialists and, and you know, strength coaches and physiologists that are trying to elevate performance standards. And the problem is that those two parties have not really come together and met. And that's what kind of the philosophy of the Performance Institute is, um, is to try and bring everyone onto the same page and, and, and work collectively um, with everyone in the community to try and elevate the sport. So this is facilitating a group of services that's free to all who come under the umbrella of athletes, UFC athletes? Yeah, so the, you know, the, the Performance Institute is a, a 30,000 square foot um, performance center um, with, with a variety of integrated science and technology innovation capabilities. But we've got a roster of about 550 athletes that are signed up to, to, rep, you know, to fight in uh, UFC events. That's obviously a global roster. Um, about half of that roster in the US and about only a dozen kind of live here in, in, in Las Vegas. So it's a truly decentralized model. Um, but we're obviously trying to influence all of the all of the respective coaches and athletes around the world, um, however best we can. I mean, we're we're a we're a facility and a service, um, and and the athletes are plugging into that service in, in different different ways. You know, some some will fly from Europe or, or Asia and spend you know a couple of weeks with us doing diagnostics, getting programming. Um, and then they go back home, work with their own coaches, and, and we can interact with them remotely. Um, other athletes are coming at different phases of a fight camp. Um, again, maybe diagnostics, maybe some treatment, um, or, or spending you know a portion of their fight camp um, finishing the preparations here at the, at the Performance Institute because of our capabilities. So it's getting used in, in lots of different ways. It's a truly dynamic, um, fluid business model. Um, and the athletes are starting to figure out, you know, the best way that it works for them individually. Is there any plans for the sports to be able to tap into it? Or is it going to be strictly fighters and fighters only? Yeah, no, I mean, listen, it's one of the, you know, the big mantras which which I, we all try and stand by is that we don't necessarily just want to be leaders in MMA as the UFC, but we want to position the UFC Performance Institute as a true global leader in human performance. Um, it's an institute, so there's service delivery, but there's also innovation, research and project work that will kind of start ramping up out of our facility, hopefully here in the not too distant future. Now, with that, what we want to be able to do is obviously inform best practice and position the UFC alongside the English Premier League, the NBA, the NFL, the NRL, all these other global um, you know, leagues and, and teams that have, uh, that have got a say in you know, people look towards in terms of, of, of leading the conversations around human performance. So that's truly our ambition, um, which means, you know, from 2018 onwards, we will probably um, work with some other sports potentially. Um, but our our core services and our core clientele is always going to be the UFC roster um, and those athletes that come, come and go through our roster um, and trying to do the best we can for those guys. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to get too fluffy now, but as the the VP of performance, how have you gone about developing that uh, high performance structure and philosophies? And obviously, well, not obviously, but so you, when you came in, you were the kind of first guy, and then it, everything's been built down from you. Is that right? Yeah, luckily I was the first um, the first you know external recruitment um, that, that the guys took on here. Um, you know, the, the performance institute. So. Um, you know the the recruitment was led by um, our vice president of operations, James Kimball, who's been with the UFC for for seven years. 
um, and also the Vice President of Athlete Development, Forrest Griffin, who's a, a former world champion, Hall of Famer. Um, those two guys basically um, spent two years looking around the world at the best facilities and taking all the best pieces and, and bringing it to, uh, to Las Vegas here. Um, but then they went about trying to formulate the staff and, and the first per- person on the staff was myself. So I was very lucky to, to do that. When I came online, then obviously I managed all the performance staff um, so we went about recruiting, you know, the right people um, for the different roles we have here. So, listen, I, I always say, you know, the church is not the building, the church is the people. Um, and whilst I'm biased and I, I truly believe we've got the world's best high-performance facility here, um, it's it's our staff and our people that, that make this whole thing tick. So, for me, people ask me about high-performance structures. Well, a high-performance structure to me is not necessarily an org chart, it's a philosophy. Um, I say that flippantly um, because obviously there's a hierarchy and there's there's different roles and responsibilities. But high performance services and high performance structures are a, are a mentality and a, and a way we go about our work on a day to day basis. So that's what we try and promote here. Um, you know, it's the what, the how, and the why. I guess um, that is always the question that, that resonates with me. I think a lot of people get it the wrong way around. Um, a lot of professional teams will always start with, you know, what are we trying to do? We're trying to win leagues. We want to win a world championship, whatever. Um, we've kind of reversed that approach. We start with the why. Um, you know, what, why why are we doing what we're doing? Why are we here? Um, and that, you know, I truly believe that's what differentiates us because it allows us to put the athlete at the centre of the conversation um, and it, it, it makes sure that we understand we're all aligned to a greater purpose and a, and a bigger cause above just um, you know success. So you know we we talk a lot about and you know our athlete centered approach and you know coach led models with that's an, an environment enabled by the the facilities that we have here. Um, but we're ultimately trying to empower athletes. We're, we're ultimately giving them a piece in their conversation, and we're trying to plug in services that um, either they've got holes in their current. You know, repertoire or portfolio, um, where we can make you know bespoke, customized packages and performance strategies that ultimately align to their ambitions. So you know, it's 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 definitely a philosophy. Um, our people are at the centre of that philosophy. Um, I'm, you know, I I had a great experience in the English Institute of Sport with the likes of Alex Wolf and Chris McLeod and Stu Pickering. You know, some of the, some of the senior guys when I was there, and and we did a lot of work around recruitment. And I've taken those uh, those ideologies and, and and replicated them somewhat here in my current role. Um, but you know, we always want to recruit on character. People need to buy into our mantra, our philosophy of how we're going to operate here at the UFCPI. Um, which is a, a selfless strategy, um, and and then you know the complex, you know, high performance structures are complex, I guess. So there's there's lots of interacting components, and you know the aggregated activity of those components is, is non-linear in fashion. Um, so at times, as we move forwards in our services, some people are going to take a precedence, and, and other staff members might need to take a back seat, and that's going to be fluid across time. We've all got to be comfortable with that. So, you know, it might be that we have a, a physical therapist is leading on a particular, you know, performance problem, um, but our strength coach and our nutritionists, and they're all comfortable, you know, that that's the situation for the athlete, another athlete. Um, you know, it might be very much a, 
a strength coach driven strategy and everyone's plugging in so that you know whilst we have a hierarchy of, of organization it's a truly uh, dynamic um process that we're working in um because we're all comfortable um of, of what people's roles are and what's going to be best for the athlete at the center of the conversation so i've just got written down you've kind of you've, you've touched on it there a little bit but obviously the the uh, roles that you recruited for were very visible online, right. um, which obviously isn't the case when you're looking at kind of big institutions, especially here in the UK, that people get, you know, it goes under the radar that someone's a recruit. But obviously, your, yours was very visible. What were the what were the specific qualities that you were looking for when it came to to recruiting staff? Uh, obviously, you've gone to a little bit of detail there with regards to the philosophy and the and fitting with the culture. But is there anything else that was kind of high on the agenda when it comes to recruitment? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, <laughs> anyone else that's listened to this podcast that's in similar positions will know recruitment's the hardest thing you do um, because, you know, it's it's such a crucial part of what your organizational identity is. Um, you know, we were very, you know, we had a great identity in terms of a global recruitment strategy for our positions because we want the best people. Um, we want the right people and the right fit. So, you know, we're not we're not shy about trying to recruit superstars um, because we want to position ourselves as, as the best in the field. But in terms of recruiting people and, and you know, characteristics and traits, you know, um, book smarts is huge, obviously. So, you know, we, we need people that have got experience and technical skill sets and, and have you know, walk the walk and can talk the talk. Um, but we also need people that fit into a philosophy and a mindset. And, and that's of, often where recruitment can be hard um, because then it comes down to core values and, and understanding a person's identity and, and what, what, they, what their beliefs are and, and how they want to operate. Um, and high-performance behaviors and characteristics are a central piece of what I try to recruit people on. So, you know, I don't want to say character first and technical second, um, but that's absolutely, you know, an, an important factor that, that we try to consider when, I, when I'm recruiting people um, is that how are they going to fit into the, the performance team? Um, they've got to bring some technical skills, which we don't currently have, but at the same time, they've got to be able to um, gel and mold into our, our, our staff philosophy our staff mantra and, and and what we what we're getting after i think we you know i always say that um we, we need people with growth mindsets um i've i've been doing this a long time now and you know luckily i've i've been in some great situations and i've also been in some crap situations i've been fired from two different jobs um you know all learning learning experiences and at the same time i've i've you know, won Olympic gold medals and, and hold world records with athletes that have I'm won, won the medals, but I've been part of that process for, for athletes that have had huge success. So, you know, the centre of it is is a growth mindset, um, is an empathy uh, for the athletes that we're trying to support and the ability to uh, to dare greatly, stealing, you know, Brene Brown's kind of concept. But uh, we can't be scared to fail, and, and that's how we're going to learn. But... Um, Definitely growth mindset and people that want to uh, to work towards a greater cause. Mm -hmm. Cool. So I just want to get into a little bit deeper into the kind of train chat and cutting and weight management been a big thing um, in the industry that you're in. Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about 
the current practices of what you met upon uh, upon starting this role and where where things may be heading? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, the sport of MMA is, is a weight classification sport. And I guess the first dynamic of play that we that you need to consider is that weight classification drives a lot of the you know the the methodology and the ambitions of our athletes it's also one of the biggest challenges and the biggest risks to our athletes in terms of being able to compete because you're trying to compete at a certain weight class you need, you need to make that weight class to even step into the octagon you know so um you know, we're a weight classification sport. There's a, there's an external perspective that we're a weight cutting sport, um, but weight cutting is is just part of a, a bigger process. And you know, I think that's maybe where current practices sit in terms of a lot of emphasis is placed on weight cutting. Um, and again, listen, we, you've got to understand MMA as a sport. So, you know, why do athletes make large weight cuts and, and try and lose weight and make weight big weight descents? Well, ultimately, to try and gain a competitive advantage, right? So we have a co- components in our sport, jiu-jitsu, wrestling, um, that are ground-based, ground-based fighting. So being heavier... Um, Having greater absolute strength or relative strength is is a is a competitive advantage, right? So by being able to make a large weight cut and then rebound to a, a weight you know higher than your opponent, those those ground fighting characteristics can be it can be an advantage to be heavier. So that influences athletes' approach in our sport. Um, the interesting piece, I guess, though, unlike jujitsu or wrestling, is that MMA also has a striking component to it. So um, you know, rehydration um, and certainly rehydration of the brain is, is a critical health um, issue. So, you know, wrestling and jujitsu don't have that requirement, whereas we do. So we've got boxing and you know, Muay Thai and striking components, but we've also got grappling components. So the, the, there's a lot of dynamics at play in MMA that are not at play in other combat sports, and that's why we see our athletes, um, you know, using weight cutting strategies as as a way to try and get that competitive advantage. So, you know. So what will that? So upon their weigh in, how much will they gain before the actual fight? What's that bounce back in weight? Yeah. So so again, it's it's, it's just an understanding of the process, right? So weight cutting is. Basically, a short-term strategy. You know, the shifting of fluids or foods uh, for a short period of time to to essentially make weight. Now that that happens over the last three four days of a fight camp. Ultimately, athletes are doing a weight descent through caloric restriction for a number of weeks prior to that. Um, but then they use what we call weight cutting or water loading um, to use fluid inertia. Um, so by taking on lots of water or water loading for a, a series of you know number of days, what you essentially can do is trick um, your brain to stop producing vasopressin, which is an antidiuretic hormone. Um, so you trick that negative feedback loop, and essentially what your body does is, is offload water through the urine um, more readily. So if you take extensive amounts of water on, um, you can flush that water out of your body do that for three, four days, and then immediately kind of go cold turkey and stop. What your body continues to do, because the vasopressin has not come back into the brain yet, that um, essentially you're just going to continue peeing so you can dehydrate your body. 
Um, and, and, you know, guys are doing greater than 10% um, weight cuts um, to make weight and then rebounding, um, you know, up to 10% and more in some cases um, to, 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 on the fight night. So that's why they're trying to do, to do this for a competitive advantage. Um, now, listen, we know if you look at pure physiology, uh, a 2 to 3% um, dehydration is, is going to have a significant performance impact. Um, but for our guys, the competitive advantage of making a lower weight it outweighs those influences of, of hydration at that moment in time. So it's, it's an interesting dynamic at play because our guys have got you know, a fight to make weight and then a, a fight that's 24 hours later. Um, and I don't know many other sports that will dehydrate to the same rate that our guys do and then try and optimally perform within the next 24 hours. So if you think about playing a soccer game or playing a football game, you know, you're going to taper your training, you're going to get your diet and everything kind of tailored for Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m. Well, our guys you know, can't do that because of, of the, the weigh-in requirements. So it's a really interesting um, process at play. Just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Duncan. Hope you're enjoying part one. So more great stuff to come in part two. Um, looking at uh, developing rotational power, looking at more about physical assessments, uh, brain health, concussion, a little bit of mental health. So you've got plenty to look forward to. But just before we do get into the chat with uh, the part two with Duncan, I just want to say a big thanks to Force Dex for sponsoring this episode today. So I know Force Dex and the guys at the UFC Performance Institute have an excellent relationship. Um, and it seems as though everyone in the industry is uh, is a Forstex customer. So I would encourage you, if you are in a position to look at um, or want to look at a force plate and hardware and software solution, to check them out at forstex.com. But also have a little listening to episode 139 of the podcast where I speak to um, Forstex co-owner, Dr. Daniel Cohen, who goes into huge amounts of depth with regards to jump monitoring. So it's certainly not a sales pitch for Forstex, but just some really good, solid information for anyone that is performing jump monitoring or is interested in jump monitoring. So massive thanks to Forstex for sponsoring the episode, but I hope you enjoy part two. Um, again, say it again, but I'd love to hear your feedback uh, and I will chat soon. So when you mentioned about the, the striking, the kind of safety aspect, is there anything coming from the US, UFC regarding that, like a po- like policy-wise and doing it safely, or is that kind of up to the individual fighter and the fight team? Well, I, yes and yes. <laughs> okay, okay. So, you know, the, the, the fighters are independent contractors, right? They, you know, they, they, they fight for our promotion um, as the UFC, um, but ultimately they've got their own coaching staff. A lot of them have their own nutrition staff, their own S&C coaches. And, um, you know, we're just trying to integrate with those staff as much as we can and support the whole process. Again, putting the athlete at the center of the conversation. Um, so, you know, that there's a lot of um, awareness around their bodies and how they, how much weight they can cut. You know, some of these athletes are some of the best nutritionists I've ever met because they intimately know um, their body um, anecdotally and, and experientially, obviously, but you know, they're very 
very aware of what they need to do to to make weight. The, the problem is that sometimes because of the lack of um, you know, lack of accuracy, let's say, um, or, or true awareness around it, that can sometimes get us into some issues around you know missing weights and and, and things like that. So that's where we try and hopefully support the process. Um, but moving forwards, yeah, we 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 as a UFC PI, um, you know, want to look at historical data to try and influence and 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 try and drive best practice in this area. Um, because again. Dehydration is is the number one cause of of reduced performance. Um, the guys are dehydrating to some extent to make weight, and then they rehydrate. So we're looking into you know the rates of rehydration for you know rehydrating the brain and the health of of the athlete in in competition in the fight. Um, and moving forwards, like I say, we our our standards and our ambitions are perfectly aligned with the athletes and the coaches. Ultimately, we want you to. Make weight um, in a in a health and safe way. We want you to rebound um, so that you can then perform optimally uh, in in the in the fight the next day. And if you perform optimally, then people are going to want to come and watch you fight because um, you're going to be exciting. You're going to be on more pay per view um, shows, and you potentially can earn more money. So we really feel like um, our our ambitions are, are perfectly aligned with the athletes and. Um, we're all working towards that, but yeah, it's certainly project work that we're trying to uh, to look at moving forwards. Is 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 how we support the weight cutting process and the weight management, um, and 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 decentivize um, some of the large weight cuts um, and, and rebound weights that potentially um, we see in the media. Mm-hmm. So since you've been in the role and the work that's been going on, actually looking at what an MMA fighter looks like through the profile that you've been doing yeah what is the what's been the outcome of that what does an MMA fighter look like I wish I could give you that answer heads up right now Rob um <laughs> I can't um <laughs> simply because we you know we've been going five months here now um you know we're starting to aggregate some real cross-sectional information about true elite MMA fighters um because all of our subject population are all fighting in the UFC so you know as, as the as the top promotion in MMA globally then you know we're getting access to some some true elite caliber athletes um I don't know with no disrespect to anyone else listening or out there doing research or data collection you know that we, we've we've every one of our fighters is is in the UFC and and that, that athlete pool is, is is amazing to be able to collect data on so um, you know, the, the, the certain cross-sectional information that we can start collecting, we don't have enough statistical power in each of our weight classes classes at this moment in time to really differentiate um, truly in terms of what a, what a meaningful change is between the different weight classes because, again, huge part of, of our sport is, is the difference between a 125-pound male versus a 265-pound male is, and everything in between is, is huge. It's, the fight is different. So, for example, um, you know, about 75% of heavyweight fights are finished by knockout. Well, over 80% of 125, 20, uh, 125 fights uh, go to a decision. So it's just a different fight because of the makeup of the athlete, right? So... You know, we're really starting to understand the sport, the metrics of the sport in terms of how people are winning the fight. Um, and, and, and we work with fight metrics, um, you know, statistical um, group who've been aggregating you know, 
data around the fight itself for, for a number of years now, but we can start understanding how fights have, have won themselves. And then what we're trying to do at the Performance Institute is overlay the physical characteristics to that. So we have uh, you know, Bo Sandoval and, and myself, Bo's our Director of Strength and Conditioning. My background's obviously in Strength and Conditioning. Um, you know, we've worked to develop and we continue to develop our um, our portfolio of, of diagnostics here. Um, we we have you know strength and power profiling, so we do isometric mid thigh pulls for for a two second and a six second effort, and I can explain that in a moment. We do drop jumps, counter movement jumps, all on force plates, and we look at speed squats and upper body but you know punch throws to build out power curves. We do metabolic efficiency testing to try and really understand fuel um, and, and, and energy burn. And um, we look at some sport specific profiling, body composition, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we've got a real portfolio. Um, if, if I go into some of the details, you know, the, if I look at, you know, strength, pure strength. So we, we you know, we've got bilateral integrated force plates and, and we do mid thigh pulls for, for strength assessment. Um, you know, we have, we have anywhere from athletes that are pulling between 2.4 times their own body weight up to athletes that are pulling 4.7 times their own body weight. So that's a 4,710 newton um, pull. So those guys out there that understand the mid-thigh pull, um, that's pretty good numbers. That's Olympic weightlifting standards um, for competitive weightlifters. So, you know, our highest relative um, pull is 4.86 times your own body weight. Um, which for a non, you know, non-pure Olympic lifter or dead uh, or power lifter, you know, that, that's a great number. Um, and you know, that's heavily influenced by the background of the athlete. So the guys that are coming from wrestling and jujitsu and grappling type, um, strength-based sports, obviously tend to perform better than the strikers and the boxers of karate, the Muay Thai's, Taekwondo's, etc., um, that fall into MMA. Um, we also use the force plate for, for counter movement jump assessment. What I, what I would say is surprisingly, um, and again, if you look at MMA fighters versus other sports, pretty average jumpers um, in terms of their ability to utilize elastic strength. Um, our, our highest counter movement jump um, is 73 centimeters or 26 inches. So it's nothing to, you know, nothing great compared to volleyball players or basketball players. Um, our you know peak forces are okay, um, nothing to write home about. But the nature of how they're generating force in some of these movements is what is fascinating about this population, which we really see in some of the early data, um, is that they are super concentric based um, and really lacking in in eccentric qualities, um, which is really interesting. So for for a bunch of guys that are you would consider a quite athletic, have got huge engines. The way that they're generating force is, is pretty interesting and we're really getting into some of that detail at a granular level now. Um, so, you know, eccentric rates of force development are pretty pretty poor in this population. Um, that's probably got implications for potential injury management. Um, but also we've got to then say, you know, does it come back to preparation of MMA fighters are some of their sport specific training habits negating eccentric um, demand on, on, on the tissue um, but also are they missing the opportunity to maximize athletic potential because they're simply not training eccentric elastic loading 
um, within some of their training strategies. So, you know, lots of questions can come out of that. That's really where I th feel we can potentially influence the whole community um, around training strategies to elevate performance standards. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of really interesting early findings coming out of some of our force plate and our you know our power curve um work that we're trying to trying to look into profiling these athletes from a cross-sectional perspective so you've mentioned the the work on eccentric uh eccentric work for the injury prevention but is there anything else that um that stands out in terms of what you're doing regarding injury prevention obviously we we talked before about obviously the, the close nature of of what these guys are doing day in day out and the potential for, for for illness yeah i mean so it's a fight right um so it's hard to prevent injuries in in any sport let alone fighting so injury injuries are going to happen um what our ambition is to minimize the rates of which they happen um which is obviously the ambition of any sports professional out there is you know injuries occur we just want to make sure that we're not missing any that we could have potentially prevented or you know try and educate a an approach or a strategy that is is going to influence good practice or best practice and to, to try to minimize that so you know the first part of that is to try and understand our what injuries are occurring our injury audits we're you know really elevating an awareness around the mechanisms of injury in mma um we we get every type of injury you would expect obviously from cuts and lacerations to fractures to dislocations to you name it so um you know our, our injury prevention strategy starts with understanding injury what where, where's the biggest injuries happening for us you know it's knees and shoulders um about 19 percent each so you know 20 percent knees 20 percent shoulders you know back and neck is about 15 percent of our total injuries um and then it's about understanding where the where those injuries are happening, what are the mechanisms to cause that. So, you know, 30-odd percent of injuries in training uh, come from submission techniques. So, you know, where we, the athletes are, are putting in, you know, joint locks and, and, and causing injury that way. Um, so how do we try and influence or manage that? Um, there are about 23% of our injury audit is from chronic and overuse injuries. Now that's absolutely an area where I feel we can start trying to shape things and, and, and remove that or certainly lower that number. Um, so again, that's an educational piece about how we periodize, how we go about um, educating training load distribution across time, how we um, work with the coaches and the different you know service professionals that are working in the big gyms around the world um, to, to understand overuse injuries, the nature of the overuse injuries that um, MMA fighters are seeing um, to, to try and reduce that. And then also the, the big one obviously is, is the live training, the sparring that these guys are doing, um, particularly, you know, wrestling scrambles and, um, you know, jujitsu work on the ground where you're seeing a lot of incidental injuries. Um, but, but there are certainly things that we can potentially try and look at um, of how your practices are set up, the duration of a of a practice, so that fatigue is managed. Um, you know the, the space and the required area. There's lots of things that go into injury prevention strategies above and beyond just hey, let's make sure we improve our movement preparation um, portion of of a workout. 
oh, let's make sure we, we cool down properly and, and our mobility work is on point. So, you know, that's what we're trying to look at this thing much more from a, a, a 30,000 feet perspective. Um, but injury strategies sit on many different levels because of the injury audit that we're seeing. The, 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 there's lots of different mechanisms of injury and there's lots of different types of injury. So we have to have an approach or try to get towards an approach to attack each of those. Mm-hmm. So we saw a couple of fights ago with uh, with Conor McGregor and there was lots of media attention around his kind of ground-based movement and the, the guys that he was working with on that front. Yeah. But what so but what does what's the training of a MMA fighter look like, especially in the build up to a, a fight? What does what's the kind of proportion? How has it been periodized? Um, what's it look like? Yeah, I mean, well, again, I wish I could answer that question for you. I come come back to me <laughs> in two, three years' time, Rob, and hopefully I'll be able to get a better answer. But um there's there's no one size fits all all right again it it comes back to each of the individual fighters and their coaches prepare differently um if if your their background their tendencies go into you know the way they want to prepare the way they feel comfortable in preparing obviously the the nature of your opponent how they're going to prepare um ultimately you know what my, my experience historically has been with Olympic boxing and Olympic uh, taekwondo from a combat sport perspective. What that allowed you to do was have a very structured, clear understanding of a competitive schedule between now and four years' time to the next Olympics. So I know, you know when open events or open tournaments are going to be. I know when European championships or world championships are going to be. Then I know when the Olympics is. And there's, the dates are locked in and set in place for, for across four years. So it really allows you to periodize in a much more strategic, strategic approach. Um, MMA or professional MMA, professional combat athletes tend to have a fight and then they obviously are waiting for the next promotion to sign them up to another fight. So there's a there's a downtime or a, an off-camp or an out-of-competition period where the athletes don't necessarily know when their next fight is going to happen. Um, what that has done is... Um, generated a little bit of a culture of fight camp preparation. Now, fight camps can be anywhere from six weeks to 12 weeks before the fight, you know. Um, So an athlete um, gets a date announced for for their next professional bout, um, and then they're going to schedule in when fight camp starts. So, you know, the fight camp is is sharpening the knife, um, and and if you look at traditional periodization and longitudinal approaches to, to athlete development... It, it creates a very condensed um, condensed approach. Um, and in eight weeks, you can only create certain amounts of anatomical adaptation and physiological change because you, you try and change biological systems that we know from research and inherent understanding of, of training methodology takes longer periods of time. So I think, you know, what... what what we all need to kind of have the conversation around in, in, in the, the combat sport community here is, is come to the table and, and all try and flesh out what is what is the best approach. Um, what I would say, and again, it's, it's my, my personal take on this, is that we need to look at the fight camp strategy and extrapolate it to instead of being an eight-week eight fight camp, it's a 52-week fight camp, and we really start to understand long-term athlete development um, because these are professional athletes and there's certain areas of athlete p- 
potential and, and physiological adaptation that we need to do away from fight camp. So I'm a big fan of, of, of block periodization strategies with combat athletes. I, I, I had the same strategy with, with the Olympic Taekwondo team back in the UK where we had so much success. Um, simply because it allows you to work on your general preparation um, strategies and then move you know, your accumulation, if, you, if you're using traditional block periodization terminology, then drop into you know, a specific preparation phase or that classic transmutation phase, um, which if you understand periodization um, terminology and what, that, what the purpose of that transmutation phase is, it's very sport-specific um, and allows you to touch on sport-specific um, attributes but it's still not competition training, right? So if you cycle between accumulation and transmutation, it allows you to get your general preparation and your specific preparation in. It allows you to be at a position that is, is close enough to competition that you can drop into a fight camp. And now what you can do is get into your very specific um, training strategies that is essentially sharp in the knife and it's, it's a peaking phase, right? So a, a four to eight week peaking phase is, is fight camp um, or in, Again, if you're using traditional block periodization terminology, your realization of, of the predetermined work that you've done. So, again, it's it's a personal perspective on things. Um, athletes are distributing their, their workload very differently, but I'm a big fan of just cycling accumulation and transmutation until an athlete understands when their fight, when their next bout is going to happen. And at that point, point, we can drop them into that realization phase. Now, it doesn't have to be a hard, fast eight weeks. Um, which I think is a bit of a cultural thing in, in, in MMA particularly, um, we can have a 10-week fight camp, we can have a 12-week fight camp. You know, it's, it, it's just all around preparation. But on a week-to-week -week basis, um, in each of those specific phases, we've got to understand how we're distributing the work. Uh, and a key, key piece to that um, is, is understanding the MMA coach's strategy and philosophy. I always say MMA is the decathlon of combat sports because there's all these respective disciplines and components that the guys are trying to put into their, their event and their training. So it makes for a pretty full bucket um, of, of training stimuli. Um, and then we've got to try and put, you know, S&C strategies, regen and recovery strategies, etc., on top of that. So... Um, there's a lot going on. So the management and the distribution of that on a week-to-week -week basis has to be distributed across a longer period of time for it to be successful. I think a big a big bugbear of mine um, in a decathlon-type combat sport, as I talk about, where there's lots of pieces and components going on, is, is just that stimulus and the amount of physiological stimulus you need to get a... Um, a systemic adaptation. Um, you know, people say remove the, you know, separating the signal from the noise, um, which is true. You know, we, we've got to understand that training development is a longitudinal strategy, uh, and some of these things um, that, that are going to help athlete performance can't just take place within an eight-week or a four-week period. That, that, that already needs to be in the bank from, from general preparation phases that have been done historically throughout the year. Superb. I'll definitely take you up on the offer of uh, coming back in two or three years and see how things have changed. Oh, yeah. But um, 
just to I think a nice place to uh, to round up and it just kind of goes back to the um, injury prevention side of things yeah. and that is something that's definitely on topic at the minute not just in um, in MMA but in other sports rugby and whatnot and, and uh, American football but that's concussion and brain health and mental health right what's going on down at the um, yeah so again you're right it's, it's, it's very um you know it's very vogue at the minute and and you know research is finding out more and more about the impact of, of concussion and, and combative sports on on brain health be that concussion or subconcussive brain injury um we're, we're trying to be really progressive at the at the ufc and um you know that that's even been happening before my arrival um, here in terms of the, the UFC actively tries to position itself as as a as an organisation that wants to support athlete health and it puts the athlete health and well being at the forefront of any of our conversations. We're, we're a combat sport. We're, we're a fighting sport. So um, as I've said, injuries are going to happen, but our assets, our you know, the commodity is is the athlete. So. Having the conversation around athlete health is always is always central. So, um, yeah, we we're trying to do a number of things in this area, both with partnerships externally and both internally here at the Performance Institute moving forwards. Um, that kind of begins with our partnership with the Cleveland Clinic, um, which is a, a big medical research um, center, um, and the, the the brain the Cleveland Clinic brain injury. Um, research um, that we partner with and, and co-fund um, is, is a multi-year professional fighters health study. So it's, it's been going for five years now and, and we've just committed to another five years um, moving forwards where we're, we're, we're co-funding research which has got MRI imaging looking at um, current MMA fighters, retired MMA fighters and looking at some of the uh, imaging and also the, the biochemistries that um, potentially could be markers of or, or indicator indicators of um, athlete health and, and and you know detrimental responses of of training or of fighting or of, of a long term career in, in in combat sports and you know nobody knows that um, extensively at this moment in time so the UFC is trying to position itself um, as a central player in in that um, conversation. Um, Internally, what we're trying to do is, you know, we're looking at some interesting things around dietary interventions. Um, there's a, you know, a lot of, a pretty decent amount of research now coming out looking at omega threes and DHA, um, which, which is a long chain fatty acid, um, and how some dietary interventions might have preventative mechanisms to minimize injury, uh, minimize brain injury. Sorry, so you know, we're looking at that. Um, we're looking at some potential equipment um, implications, um, particularly partnering with, with researchers out of um, you know, Cincinnati University, Cincinnati University Children's Hospital, um, where we're looking at maintaining um, fluid in, in the brain, in the, in the skull, so that the, the brain can potentially slosh around in, in, in a fluid-filled sac and not hit the side of the, uh, the skull. Um, which has shown some really positive findings in, in American football um, in early studies. We want to see if we can potentially look at that in MMA. Um, and then also just looking at, again, periodization and, and, and trying to have more understanding of 
how many sparring sessions should athletes be doing? What's the impact of fatigue on those sparring sessions and the, the incidence of, of brain trauma? Um, equipment selection. So, you know, are they using heavy gloves or small MMA gloves? When do they use them? How much should they use them through the week? Um, the impact of a fight camp and the different phases of a fight camp does dehydration you know, is there any correlation between an athlete that's in a caloric deficit or going through a dehydration strategy? Um, can that affect or have an output on um, brain health and brain trauma? So, again, we're trying to work with others and, and also work internally to, 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 to understand it better um, and, and to get more data and more information in this space because we want to support our athletes go about their work um, as a combat athlete um, in the in the safest fashion um, and a fashion that will prolong their careers as much as we can help them with superb well like i say i think that was that was a good place to uh to round up but any anyone out there who wants to keep up to date with what you've got going on where's the best place um well, I mean, listen, we're in Twitter sphere right now, yeah. So, um, I mean, I'm on, I'm on Twitter, <laughs> Duncan underscore French or Duncan French. I'm on uh, Instagram, Doctor Duncan French, um, and yeah, I uh, I can be reached um, through the UFC PI website um, if you want to um, send an informal uh, message. That'll that'll fall down to me at www.ufcpi.com. Um, Superb. Well, really appreciate you uh, coming on, Dunk. It's um, it's been superb. No Thank worries, you very bro. much. No, I appreciate the uh, invite, and um, good luck to everyone with with what you've got going on out there. Thanks, mate. Appreciate that. Catch you soon. All right. Bye now. Thanks for tuning in to episode 162 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Hope you enjoyed the chat with Duncan and I just want to say a massive thanks to Duncan for giving up his time to chat to me um, a couple of weeks ago. I know he's relatively new in the job, he's got tons going on so I really appreciate him giving up uh, an hour and more of his time to have a little chat. So massive thanks again to Fatigue Science, Val Performance and Force Decks for sponsoring this episode today. But make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player and every Thursday morning you will get a hit of podcast action uh, in the morning on a Thursday UK time. So hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget to check out previous episodes of the podcast. Got some great guests coming up over the next couple of weeks and I will chat to you soon. Thanks again.